It was also used as an instrument of war. I can't say war. Of <laughs> war. Hold on. <laughs> well, what is it good for? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 118. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are continuing our deep dive into the 12 days of Christmas. Although these are the final days of Christmas, the festivities are anything but close to dying down. In fact, between the milking and the leaping and the drumming, one may wonder if we are in fact ramping up. Continuing now through days 7 to 12, culminating on Twelfth Night and the Feast of the Epiphany, rest assured there is still plenty of Christmas to be had. But first, this podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. How about you? Do you want more from the modern lady? Become a Patreon supporter and for just $5 a month, you will have access to extra content. Find us by going to patreon.com forward slash the modern lady podcast. You can also support the show by giving us a rating and review on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Your reviews, especially on iTunes, can really help others who might be interested find our podcast too. Your comments mean the world to us. This week's shout out goes to at Swan City Chandlery, one of our listeners on Instagram, who commented on our first ever real video featuring our Advent meditation. And she says, quote, This episode made me tear up, especially the part about the children listening to soft, murmured conversation and laughter from their parents and thinking it must be heaven on earth. That line will stick with me for a long time. Thank you for providing such a rich listening experience." Well, thank you so much, Swan City Chandlery, for taking the time to tune in to our special episode and for leaving us your comment on Instagram. That part of the reflection was a highlight for Lindsay to write and one of my favorite parts to produce. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com, or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. With all of this talk of birds, birds for gifting and birds for roasting, I thought we'd take a brief look at brining meat. What is brine? Well, in its most simple form, it is salt water. The salt water tenderizes the meat, relaxing the muscle fibers, dissolving the proteins, causing them to open up and swell. We know that moisture is lost during the cooking process, so adding more liquid before the meat is exposed to the heat is bound to help a little. One of the complaints about turkey is that it can be dry, and this makes sense as it is not a fatty bird. Goose, now that is a fatty bird, and chicken falls somewhere in the middle, but not turkey. So adding fats is a key component in making turkey juicy, but brining really helps. Now I have brined many a turkey and lots of whole chickens. I have done everything from salt, fat, acid, heat's very simple buttermilk brine to Nigella Lawson's turkey brine. And sometimes I just make up something myself. I will share Nigella's brine ingredients here so you can see that sometimes it is better to go beyond just using salt and water. So add to the water, quartered oranges, salt, 
peppercorns, bouquet garni, and for that, you can kindly refer back to part two of our series on bay leaves, uh, cinnamon sticks, caraway seeds, cloves, star anise, mustard seeds, sugar, onions, fresh ginger, maple syrup, honey, and parsley stalks. Now, Nigella does share the full recipe on nigella.com. The main issue is finding a container big enough to hold the turkey and all the brine, plus where to store it out in the cold so that it stays safe for 24 hours. Nigella leaves hers outside if it's cold enough and uses her son's skateboard to keep the top on tightly. Try it this year. I promise you, you won't regret it. I have honestly never tried to brine anything in my life. Maybe this is my year. This is your year. I feel it. (laughs) I know because I've seen that Nigella special where she brines Mm -hmm. the turkey. And that makes a ton of sense that you would use this to to help tenderize because it is, it can be a really dry bird. So, okay. There are a lot of good suggestions here. Nigella is obviously a no-fail option, but I didn't even think of trying the salt, fat, acid, heat one as well. So, okay. Turkey's on the menu and I'm brining it first. The gift giving continues from our true love in these next days of Christmas. This week, we are exploring the traditions, significance, and customs of the final six days, and the range of facts, trivia, and fun has us so excited to dig in because, wow, the range of topics. Am I right, Lindsay? Oh my goodness, are you right? (laughs) Let's be honest here. We have almost Mm -hmm. nine thousand words written between us right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. just for this episode so (laughs) buckle up everyone yes (laughs) if you thought last week was a ride (laughs) you're in for a treat well we'll jump right in so Mm -hmm. it is now the seventh day of christmas and it is december 31st so on the seventh day of christmas my true love gave to me seven swans a swimming Oi, still with the birds. Although this is the last of the bird gifts as we move into the gifting of humans, which is arguably worse. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's look again, Michelle, uh, at the Christian symbolism. The seven Mm -hmm. swans could represent either the seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, namely baptism, confession, communion, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, and anointing of the sick, or the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are as follows, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. But what if our true love was just giving us swans, literal swans? Mm -hmm. First of all, they are clearly a luxury gift. I was curious and looked up what it would cost to order a pair of swans today, and my research took me to a website called purelypoultry.com, and I learned that a pair of your basic white mute swans, yes, mute is like your basic swan you'd see at a little, you know, local pond, those will set you back around $1,800 for the, uh, for the pair, but the price rises dramatically from that point with the black necked swans coming in at just under 6,800 for the pair trumpeter swans sitting at almost 9,800 for a pair and whooper swans, <laughs> that name, literally Ooh. the most expensive swans are called the whooper swans. <laughs> And they are, yeah, by far the most expensive at over $11,000 a pair. Now, if you do choose to order through purelypoultry.com, the shipping is free, Michelle, just so you know. Oh, (laughs) 
I was just going to say, maybe they're called whooper swans because that's the sound you make when you get your bill. (laughs) Well done. Thank you. Let's say you buy seven, right? So the most common swan type in England is the white mute swan. Mm. And it also happens to be, again, the most affordable. So few. Now, seven of those would cost just under $6,500. So it is a pretty nice gift. Now, since medieval times, swans were considered a status symbol, gracing the dining tables of the aristocracy and kings, especially in their Christmas feasting. In 1251, Henry III had 125 swans as part of his Christmas dinner. And the proper way to cook and serve a swan was to roast it in its feathers and... (laughs) I'm just... I can't. And serve it with lit incense stuck in its beak. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right 100 and how many of these 25 <laughs> okay just trying to get a visual yes. got it <laughs> now i'll admit here that i have grossly underestimated the importance of swans in british history i have learned a lot from the website unireadinghistory.com i learned about swan moots which were courts set up solely for the purpose of identifying the ownership of swans Only very prestigious organizations and the crown were able to put their own swan mark on the soft part of a swan's beak. If a spare unmarked swan was found wandering around, it was considered to be owned by the crown. To this very day, in early July, the swan uppers have a ceremony on the Thames River in order to count the swans that belong to the queen and other guilds. Now, even locally, and Michelle, you mentioned this before we started recording, we've got the little Mm -hmm. town of Stratford, right? And Stratford, just like its English counterpart, um, has the River Avon (laughs) and (laughs) its swans. Yep. And it's about a half hour from us. And they have a very popular swan parade in which the swans Mm -hmm. are brought out of their winter habitats and processed down the main street towards the small lake. Now, if you're wondering, and I'm sure you're wondering, Michelle, does swan taste good? Um... Apparently, Mm. it was known for its melancholic juice and was described as being blacker, harder, and tougher than goose meat. Oh, okay. That's Mm. not what I was expecting. (laughs) Well, sadly and surprisingly, the baby swans, known as cygnets, are far tastier, and they were consumed along with powdered goose and six eels, three of which were larded not the other three. Mm. Now, eating swan was still done in the Victorian times, but fell out of fashion. And now they are a protected species. And up until 1998, killing a swan was an act of treason. So Michelle, what about a swan themed gift this Christmas? Well, I don't think you could do much better than tickets to see the world famous Tchaikovsky Ballet Swan Lake. It is considered a Christmas ballet, and it has been performed by almost every ballet company since its debut in Moscow in 1877. It is based on Russian and German folklore about a princess named Odette who was turned into a swan by an evil sorcerer's curse. Now, if ballet isn't your thing, might I suggest wallpaper? I have long admired a couple of different wallpapers that feature swans, and I can't think of a prettier paper for a powder room, a laundry room, or a nursery. So check out Swan Lake by Nina Campbell or the very popular Swans Wallpaper at hebuhouse.com. Now there's one last thing. The seventh day of Christmas happens to be overshadowed by a much more popular secular celebration, 
and you guys even might celebrate this one. It's it's called New Year's Eve. <laughs> oh my god, we do that. You do that? Yeah, you've heard yes. of this one. <laughs> I've heard of this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, however, in many European countries, this day is known as Saint Sylvester Day. Pope St. Sylvester I was a pope in the early church, having served from 314 to 335. Legend has it that it was he who converted Constantine. Now, this is a pretty big feast day in Eastern Europe, with many different traditions spanning from walking pigs on leashes to dropping a type of molten lead into a bowl and seeing what shape it turns into in order to predict the outcome of the upcoming year, fireworks, and the eating of lentils and sausages, which look like coins. And in Switzerland, the child who sleeps in the longest on that day is playfully jeered all day long, especially by men who are dressed as Sylvester Claus. So feel free to add any of those traditions to your New Year's <laughs> Eve. Okay, so let's say we've made it through New Year's Eve and you get up on January 1st. And so what is the eighth day of Christmas, Michelle? Mm-hmm. Well, you will be happy to note, Lindsay, that the birds seem to be done and we are moving on to cows. <laughs> so on the eighth day of Christmas, our true love is giving us eight maids a milking. And our secret Christian code refers us today to the eight Beatitudes that are found in the Gospels. So let's start with the milkmaid. According to thehistoryjar.com, for a farmer to need to employ eight milkmaids around the 17th century, it implies that he is, a, he is rather wealthy. So first of all, congratulations. Your true love is an agricultural elite. That's great. <laughs> and it is said that the average milkmaid in the 17th century would be in charge of up to about 20 cows. Um, they would be aided by another servant. So if a farm did have eight milkmaids, the farmer would then own a herd of about 160 cows, hmm. supposedly. Okay, so now here's an interesting gift idea for the eighth day of Christmas, if you'd like to think outside the box. Why not give yourself and seven of your closest girlfriends, um, sisters, mothers, what have you, the gift of getting trained to hand milk cows? <laughs> Haven't you always wanted to learn how to do this? Well, now you can, thanks to 59 Heifer Farm in New Mexico. Here, the owners, Robert and Joyce Smith, live on a completely off-grid farm and train not only people how to hand milk cows, but they also train cows how to be hand-milked, which is amazing. And if this is not really your cup of tea, though, don't worry. Uh, Good Housekeeping has you covered and recommends gifting a lavender cream bath milk soak, uh, care of the company Charlie, Joe & Co., and so according to Healthline.com, milk baths can help soften, soothe, and relieve dry skin because of the proteins and fat that is found in milk. And I think that's actually a great gift to give in the middle of winter. So the menu for the eighth day of Christmas is understandably pretty milk-based heavy. And the most common suggestions online are anywhere from ice cream to pudding to hot chocolate, all of which I recommend, by the way. Uh, so perhaps this is a good day to plan a leftovers dinner, but indulge afterwards in a sweet dairy treat. And then, of course, to toast the eighth day, care of the Whistler Bar in Chicago, you could try their Milkmaid cocktail, which comprises of tequila, cream of coconut, simple syrup, and lime juice. Shake and garnish with two cucumber slices. 
So the eighth day of Christmas is also January 1st, New Year's Day. And in the church, we celebrate this day as the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. It's a day that we remember in a particular way Mary's fiat, her yes to God from the Gospel of Luke and when she became the mother of Jesus. Now, this is also the day that we in the Catholic Church traditionally celebrate the circumcision of Christ. And I know that today the medical procedure is controversial, and we're not going to get into that. But what this day is meant to remind us of is first of God's covenant with Abraham, in which he instructs Abraham to do this down the generations as a sign of this covenant with this people. And it is also so significant because it is the first shedding of blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. We know that it is ultimately uh, by the blood of Christ that we are saved. And we are more familiar with his redeeming blood from his death on the cross. But eight days after his birth, according to Jewish custom, Mary and Joseph, out of obedience to the law, took their son, who is God himself, to fulfill this ancient instruction. As we were texting back and forth while we were both uncovering, you know, all of these facts and we were keeping things from each other so that we could genuinely be surprised as we were sharing them. But as soon as I knew you were doing the eight maids of milking, I just kept thinking about the book Tess of the Duberville by Thomas Mm. Hardy that I just read in this past year. And it has a whole section that a lot of people write off as being super boring, but it's all about her being a milkmaid. And I found that part riveting. Like it was the most beautiful description of pastoral life and her job as a milkmaid and what the other women were going through. And I just, yeah. So as soon as I saw that, I thought back to Tess of the Duberville. So maybe recommended Mm. reading if anybody's interested in a little bit more about milkmaids. Well, yeah. Well, you clearly don't need the, um, hand milking experience trip in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, having read that, that chapter. One. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'll think about it, but yeah, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. So why don't we move on then to the ninth day of Christmas? So on the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me nine ladies dancing. Now this is also January 2nd. Okay, so this one's proving to be the most confusing one for me so far. Uh, Again, if we look at the secret Christian message, this is supposed to represent the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit, namely love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But now the Catholic Church has 12 fruits with tradition adding three more to what St. Paul had outlined in Galatians. The three additional ones are modesty, chastity, and goodness. Now, we can see how these three really can be included into the original line. Again, though, if this song really was an underground way to teach Catholic catechism, they wouldn't have Mm. used nine for the fruits of the Holy (laughs) Spirit. That's so true. (laughs) Right? Okay. Yeah. Now, at least one church took this line literally and named from the Bible the nine ladies who had good reason to dance. I got this from the church's website, the church being North Heights Church of Christ and Matthew there named these women as the nine, Eve, Sarah, Rahab, Ruth, Esther, Elizabeth, Mary, the other Mary, and Mary Magdalene. I think this might be a great way to actually inspire us to look into the lives of these key women in scripture. 
I revisited the website I used earlier, um, unireadinghistory.com, and I read a long post about their take on the ninth day. And it broke down the history of dancing as Christmas entertainment along all the social classes, but it really explored Christmas dancing and its connection to enslaved people, suggesting that it was quite possibly the only day that they were allowed to make music and dance. Then I fell down another interesting rabbit hole when I learned about a small area in the Peak District of England called Stanton Moor. This area is known for its Bronze Age stone circles, and one is famously named the Nine Ladies, due to its nine still remaining standing stones. There is actually a tenth stone, but it had fallen and remained buried and out of sight for a very long time. Folklore has it that the King's Stone, I believe that's the one that had fallen over, had once been a fiddler who was playing his music on the Sabbath and nine ladies joined him and danced to his music. And as punishment for this, for dancing on the Sabbath, the nine ladies were turned into stone. Now, January 2nd is the feast day of St. Basil the Great. This wonderful man is venerated in the Eastern Orthodox Church and in the Anglican tradition too. He was born into a wealthy family in modern-day Turkey. His maternal grandfather was a Christian martyr who died before Constantine's conversion. He is considered the father of communal monasticism. So he had visited monks throughout the Middle East, Egypt, Syria, and Mesopotamia. And while he deeply respected their piety and lifestyle, he recognized that living in solitude was just not right for him. So in 358, he gathered around him a group of like-minded men and founded a monastic settlement. St. Basil was also known for his love of the poor. He opened soup kitchens and made sure people could eat during famines and droughts. He spent a lot of time with thieves and prostitutes, sharing God's love with them. He also spent a lot of time encouraging the clergy to not be tempted by wealth, and had a hand in selecting only the most holy of men to take their holy orders. One of the things that really jumped out at me is that despite his knowledge and zeal for orthodoxy, this good bishop was more concerned with building relationships than always making sure to use orthodox terminology. Now, he wouldn't sacrifice the truth, but the way he responded to people who challenged him or disagreed with him was so charitable that he really was able to affect and change the hearts of the people around him. In his memory, we can use January 2nd, the ninth day of Christmas, as another opportunity to serve the less fortunate in our communities. Perhaps we consider setting up a new charity to support for that upcoming year. Another fun way to celebrate St. Basil the Great is to bake a loaf of bread with some coins inside. It was said that when he wanted to give money to the poor, he had women bake loaves of sweet bread, and in the bread he hid coins so that the families would receive a pleasant surprise when they broke the bread together. There is a tradition of setting an extra place at the table for him on his feast day. And now that I've learned about why he's referred to as great, I can't think of a more special way to honor St. Basil. You can also toast his memory with the Great Basil Cocktail, which comes from the awesome book, Drinking with the Saints. Here are the ingredients. One lime wedge, one teaspoon of simple syrup, three to six fresh basil leaves, two ounces of Lillet Blanc or Lillet Blanc. I had to look that up. It's a French aromatic white wine infused with herbs and botanicals. One ounce of gin, a basil sprig for garnishing. So you squeeze lime into the shaker, add basil leaves and simple syrup, and muddle gently. Add ice, lillet, and gin, and shake vigorously at least 40 times. Pour into an old-fashioned glass or a highball glass filled with crushed ice. Garnish with a sprig of basil. Now back to the dancing ladies. 
I do have a gift suggestion, and that is the beautiful Dancing Lady Orchid, which is yellow and actually looks exactly like a lady in a ball gown dancing. It is the most extraordinary thing. So be sure to check out the Oncidium Dancing Lady Orchid. Mm, that's a great suggestion for a gift. I didn't even know that flower existed. And I'm so struck that all these feast days sprinkled throughout the 12 days of Christmas, like these saints, some we know about, some we've mm-hmm. never really heard about before, um, they all have this tie-in of special care for the poor. Yes. You know, and it's almost like the church is reminding us, like, it's the both and again, right? Yep. Like, yes, feast. Yes, make merry. This is the high festival of Christmas. Like, it's so important in our faith life, but also in your merrymaking, do not forget those less fortunate than you. And I just, I love that all the saints throughout these 12 days serve to remind us of that point. So Michelle, it's the 10th day. Tell us about the 10th day. Mm-hmm. The 10th day of Christmas. On this day, our true love is giving us 10 lords a-leaping. And in our secret Christian code, this represents the 10 commandments. But what's with the leaping? That's what I wanted to know. And why are there so many lords doing it? (laughs) Well, I found a suggestion that this verse of the carol could be in reference to the dance called the Volta. Mm. It was believed to have originated in the Italian courts and was introduced in Paris by Catherine de' Medici around 1556. Soon after that, it made its way into Elizabethan England and was a very quick success and a hit with all the ladies and the lords of the court. So the Volta, or La Volta, as it is also known, was really a scandalous dance at the time, and it was because in part of all this leaping. So the leaping itself was fine, but many complained that because it was the lord that leapt, and because he was to, you know, take his lady partner up with him into the air, he had to have a firm grasp of her. So in one source I was reading, the Lord would have to place his right hand on the small of the lady's back, and his left hand would be placed below her bust. And then he would push her up by using his right thigh under her seat, <laughs> and then turn her in midair. And this was the defining and repeated move of la volta and it resulted in many a pearl being clutched in horror (laughs) at the audacity and lewdness i saw in some sources of such gestures at the time so obviously i had to then check out what this volta looked like so Mm -hmm. i went on youtube and it is rather tame by our standards uh, but it actually looks like a lot of fun so I would suggest maybe finding, trying to find a tutorial online on the 10th day of Christmas and maybe try your hand at some leaping. So after all that dancing, though, you may need to eat to recoup up some of your energy. There are still two more days of Christmas after this, after all. So why not enjoy a treat that literally leaps into your bowl? And I thought the suggestion from 31daily.com for the 10th day of Christmas was great. They recommend popcorn. So we have one of those air poppers, the popcorn machines, and use it for our movie nights on Fridays. And it is fun to sit and watch the kernels popping up and into the bowl. So what a fun idea to either pop some in a popcorn maker or even on the stovetop. For something sweet and rich for later, you could try as well a grasshopper cocktail for your 10th day toast. 
Now, according to MixThatDrink.com, this drink hit peak popularity in the 1950s and 60s, especially in the southeastern U.S. Uh, and to make a grasshopper, you mix creme de mint, white creme de cacao, heavy cream. You have it shaken with ice until chilled and then strain it into a cocktail glass. Mm. My grandmother always made for us kids a virgin grasshopper when we would come to her house. (laughs) So fun. Yes. Yes. We got to actually choose between a pink lady or a grasshopper. And I still make these for my kids. And all it is, is milk, a little shot of vanilla, um, a little bit of white sugar and food coloring. And I put it in a shaker and Mm. I shake it all up. Sometimes I'll rim the cup with sprinkles um, to make it look extra cool. But that is one of our birthday morning drinks is a green grasshopper or a pink lady. So again, it's just milk, vanilla, white sugar, and food coloring. And it is so good. Oh my goodness. I love that because up until now, our drink suggestions have been cocktails, Mm -hmm. but this is one that everyone can enjoy. So I really like that. So the 10th day of Christmas finds us on the calendar date of January 3rd, which is when we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Name of Jesus. Now, this feast has historically been celebrated on a few different days. Originally, it was celebrated on the day that our Lord was given his name, Jesus, and that would have been at his circumcision, which we've already talked about, happened on January 1st. So Michael Foley writes in the book you've mentioned, Lindsay, Mm -hmm. Drinking with the Saints, that because this day was rather crowded with feast days already, the church wanted to dedicate a whole separate day to honor our Lord's holy name and so moved it in the 1962 calendar to either the Sunday between January 1st and January 6th, otherwise on January 2nd. And it was actually dropped as a feast altogether in the 1970 calendar until finally in the new church calendar that we use today, the feast was restored to January 3rd by Pope St. John Paul II. So the holy name of Jesus is indeed worthy of honor and veneration and especially deserves its own special feast day. In his letter to the Philippians, St. Paul writes, quote, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bend in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord, end quote. Now there's an old spiritual manual which I've tried to find the name of, but cannot. But it's referenced by catholicculture.org and catholicstraightanswers.com and others. And it cites four special benefits to invoking the holy name of Jesus. The first is that the name of Jesus brings help in bodily needs. And this was promised by Jesus himself at the Ascension in Mark's gospel, where he says, Quote, in my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. End quote. The second benefit in invoking the holy name of Jesus is that it brings help in our spiritual trials. So St. Peter at Pentecost quotes the prophet Joel when he says, quote, Then shall everyone be saved who calls on the name of the Lord. End quote. The third benefit is that the holy name of Jesus protects a person against Satan and his temptations to sin. And the fourth benefit is that we receive grace and blessing through the holy name of Jesus. We remember here the words of our Lord himself in John's gospel when he says, quote, I give you my assurance, whatever you ask the Father, he will give you in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. 
Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full, end quote. So yes, the holy name of Jesus is once again, it's a powerful prayer. It's a powerful devotion. And it's good that we have this whole special day set aside in the church calendar to remind us of its power every year. So once more, I will return to Michael Foley in Drinking with the Saints, who closes this day with a last call suggestion. And he says, lift a couple of lines from the litany of divine praises for your toast today. Blessed be God. Blessed be his holy name. Blessed be Jesus Christ, true God and true man. And blessed be the name of Jesus. This feast day is a very powerful one for my family and I. Um, I had stumbled across mm. a homily by a priest um, several years ago that forever changed how we view the holy name of Jesus, right? It's something you and I have mm-hmm. actually talked about on our entertainment episodes, um, but it just made us take his name so much more seriously, so much so that I every single time I hear his name, even when you were just saying it, I bow my head. And so it's mm-hmm. something that we do at church. It, it's a practice done in the traditional Latin mass that did not carry through into the Novus Ordo, but it's something that my family tries to do even in casual conversations with people when they say mm-hmm. the name Jesus. Uh, we just gently bow our heads. And it, whatever it does to the other person, that doesn't matter to me so much as what it does to me in that moment, right? It makes mm-hmm. there's an, a, a split second pause to honor his holy name. So it is a very, very powerful feast day. And I'm seeing more devotion to that growing again in recent years. And that, and that pleases me greatly. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And if you think about it logically, even too, like this is the name of our God, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It, it isn't really something that you use in casual conversation or just kind of uh, nonchalantly. So every time his holy name is spoken, it does make sense to mark it in some way. And I do think too, it's such a privilege for us to be able to speak his name where they didn't speak Mm -hmm. the name of God, right? Uh, The the Jews. And so Mm -hmm. his name was given to us and it's so unique and and it is really that relationship that literally that personal relationship with Jesus that we can say his name. And so to, yeah, mm. to mark it with such reverence, um, yet with such a loving familiarity and intimacy, uh, is, is such a privilege, um, that was mm. afforded to us in this new covenant. Okay. So we're almost there guys. We're almost at the end of the 12 days, but we have to hit on the 11th day of Christmas first. So Lindsay, what's in store for us today? On the 11th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me 11 pipers piping. So once again, the Christian symbolism here has this one listed as the 11 faithful disciples, meaning the 11 that remained after Judas betrayed Jesus. Okay, so we can kind of now link it to the story perhaps of the Pied Piper. Okay, I'm stretching really hard for this one, Michelle. (laughs) But but bear with me, okay? Follow. Okay. But the folklore of the Pied Piper of Hamlin states that a colorfully dressed piper was hired by the town of Hamlin to play music that would basically hypnotize the plague-riddled rats, drawing them out and away from the town. Now, the apostles also went from town to town, offering Uh new beginnings and eternal life through salvation, like healing, right? They Mm -hmm. drew sin out of these towns like a plague. However, the tale of the Pied Piper takes a dark turn when the town refused to pay him. He played his tune again and led the children of the town away from their parents, never to be seen again. Did you know that part? (laughs) 
I, I it sounds familiar, but it's not something I readily recall. <laughs> no. This was a shocker Aww. to me. And then it was even mm-hmm. more shocking when I learned that there is actually historical evidence that 130 kids did indeed wander away from the town of Hamlin on June 26th, 1284, to a place called Copen, which was otherwise known as Calvary. Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I was right with you. I was ready to believe wholeheartedly and embrace the 12 apostles yes. going and drawing out sin from all the towns. Yes. And now I'm now I'm conflicted again. <laughs> it's just this one has a lot of rabbit holes. It's a lot of mm-hmm. me digging okay. into interesting bits. <laughs> okay, so now we'll take a brief detour and learn a little bit about the history of the bagpipe. <laughs> Okay, (laughs) so we associate them now almost exclusively with Scotland, but there is some evidence that bagpipes have been around since 1000 BC, and there is a definite mention of the Pipers of Thebes from 400 BC. And like with many other things, ancient Egypt does seem to be able to claim their origins. The oldest bagpipes were likely made from dogskin and bone. It is believed that they were brought to Britain with the Romans, but it wasn't until the mid to late 1500s that they started to take the shape that we would recognize today. And then finally, it was in the 1700s when they became something that we would undoubtedly know today. Used in weddings and played at feasts, by 1700, the bagpipes replaced the Celtic harp as the instrument of choice for the Scottish clans. It was also used as an instrument of war. The sound could travel far and could be heard over the roar of battle up to 10 miles away. It inspired the Scots to fight for their homeland in the near continuous war with the English. It was due to this that following Scotland's loss at the Battle of Culloden that their new English ruler outlawed bagpipes as another way to crush the clan system. Carrying bagpipes and the wearing of kilts became an offense that could land you in jail. So when we look at this information and then try to draw yet another connection to the early apostles, I do think that we can take this symbolism a little more seriously. The sound of the pipes united people together in fighting for a cause. The sound traveled far and wide. The sound resonated even during the loudest battles. This was the world of the early apostles. Like the Pied Piper going into towns, like the pipers who united the Scottish clans, These apostles played an instrumental role in getting the good news of the gospel out. They spread the teachings of Jesus at weddings, feasts, and during times of great conflict. If we think that perhaps that is too much of a stretch, and perhaps the gift giver was just honestly sending 11 pipers to play for his beloved, then let me share with you that it costs approximately $200 per hour for a piper to come and play just one song at a wedding or funeral. This includes their travel and setup time. So for one song played by 11 pipers, you are looking at $2,200. So I'm guessing this is a gift that wouldn't soon be forgotten. Here's another gift idea that, in my opinion, blows all of the other gift ideas out of the water. There is a three-part series called The Father Christmas Series by author Cece Benison. This Mm. series has been called an irresistible addition to the ranks of a clerical sleuths and it follows mm. father to, right i know and it follows father tom christmas a recently widowed anglican vicar as he solves crimes i first stumbled across this series when i found his 11 pipers piping novel but excitedly discovered that the first book is 12 drummers drumming and his most recent one is 10 lords a leaping 
which I hope means that he is indeed working Mm. his way backwards through the 12 days. Now, in this novel, Father Christmas happens to be the chaplain for a traditional Scottish pipe band. And while attending a Robbie Burns dinner with the band, they get snowed in at the hotel. And a piper, who also happens to be the proprietor of the hotel, is found dead. Now, I need to read this series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I, I did see this result come up as I was researching the other days of Christmas mm-hmm. around this one, too. But I never investigated and I love that you did because now I want to read that too and may I just say nothing good ever really happens when guests are snowed in at hotels in no. mystery novels so <laughs> that should have been a big setup. tell yeah <laughs> now January 4th also happens to be the feast day of the first native born citizen of the United States who became a canonized saint Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton She's the beloved saint of many, many Catholic homeschoolers in North America. (laughs) Why, you might ask? Well, not only did she create the first religious community for women in America, the Sisters of Charity of St. Joseph, she also created the first Catholic school for the education of girls and young women that was staffed by religious women, and this school was free for all who wanted to attend. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, though not the founder, was a pioneer in creating a religious education system in the United States. What is so wonderful about her life, though, is that she was a widow and a mother before becoming a religious sister, and so she understands well marriage and motherhood. When her husband was still alive, they enjoyed a prosperous life, moving around as members in high society, living in a home on Wall Street in Manhattan. She was well-educated and cultured, but deeply religious, with a heart for helping orphans and making education available to all children. She is well-known in homeschooling communities also due to the home study program named in her honor, Seton Home Study School. How can you celebrate her feast day? Well, if you live near New York City, you can actually visit the church named in her honor, which stands on the site where her marital home once stood. If not, you can try to find the 1980 film, A Time for Miracles, The Story of Mother Seton, starring Kate Mulgrew, who later on, Star Trek people will know. (laughs) (laughs) What about a gift idea that isn't just an old CD of bagpipe music? Well, how about a nice kettle or teapot for piping hot drinks or a gift of piping bags and tips for the baker in your life? Oh, I love this. I know what you're saying about her being so fondly remembered in the homeschooling Mm. communities because, yeah, having just started homeschooling a year or two ago, um, she does come up quite often. And mm-hmm. I have looked at her curriculum. Well, not hers, but the Seton curriculum. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, several times. So maybe I'll pray for her intercession for, for guidance when choosing curriculum. I think that's a great idea. So we are at the last day. It is the mm. 12th day, Michelle. And yes. I need to know. Tell me all about 12th night. Okay. So before we get to 12th night, we do have 12th day. <laughs> <laughs> And our true love gives us on this last day of Christmas at 12 drummers drumming. (laughs) And so in our secret Christian code, this refers to the 12 points of doctrine in the Apostles' Creed. So truthfully, there actually wasn't much information I could find at all on the significance of 12 drummers. (laughs) Mm. And 
I texted you and I wonder if it's because by the 12th day we just <laughs> accept <laughs> that the whole thing is wrapping up with a bang and a boom of a drum and we're kind of done trying to find significant interpretations of Christmas carols. Maybe it's the 12 drummers drumming on your head after 12 days of alcohol and sugar. <laughs> the <laughs> pounding. Things. Yes. Right? <laughs> In your mind, that could definitely be it. Um, so, you know what, I just decided to leave it there for history because we'll get to much more history in a little bit. And so January 5th is also the feast of a couple of saints. He's, it's the feast of St. John Newman, and he's the first American bishop and lived in the 19th century. And it's also the feast of St. Simeon Stylites the Elder. Now, this is really interesting. The Stylites are pretty fascinating. I first heard about them a few years ago, and they are a group of people. They lived on a small platform at the top of a pillar. And so St. Simeon actually lived on top of a pillar for 37 years. And they did this at a like obviously um, inspired and fueled by divine <laughs> power. Um, but what they would do up on these pillars is they would profess and they would teach from the pillars about the gospel and about the life of Christ. And so I think they are really astounding and definitely something to look further into if that sounds interesting to you. But okay, January 5th is also the eve of the Feast of the Epiphany. Now, Lindsay, you'll have more on that in a little bit, but for now, we're going to talk about Twelfth Night. Finally, Twelfth Night. So in Tudor times, Twelfth Night actually marked the end of winter, which I thought was interesting. They believed that winter started on Halloween uh, and went through to this time. So after Twelfth Night, which was the shortest day of the year for them, spring would be starting and plowing would be beginning shortly afterwards. I find this hilarious um, for those of us who live in more wintry climates, mm -hmm. <laughs> because this is usually just when winter is actually starting. <laughs> yeah, I'll say I follow, obviously, a lot of um, British Instagram accounts, being the Anglophile mm. that I am, and they do have flowers and stuff starting to bloom around Valentine's <gasps> Day. And I'm like, what? Okay, wow. Yeah, not like here. <laughs> no, and one of the things we don't get into, and maybe you have it in your notes, but the day after Epiphany is called Plow Monday, which just doesn't sound oh. as fun as the other. <laughs> <laughs> that must be really hard to come off of the 12 days of Christmas right into Plow Monday. Yes. Talk about the case of the Mondays. <laughs> so it was actually the Council of Tours in the year 567 that first proclaimed the 12 days of Christmas to stretch from Christmas to the Feast of the Epiphany and to label it as a sacred and festive season. So interestingly, these whole 12 days becoming known and celebrated as Christmastide and as the 12 days of Christmas was because the Roman Empire was having trouble consolidating its universal calendar between uh, significant days in the East and in the West. So in the West, they celebrated December 25th as the holiest day. And in the East, they celebrated it on January 6th, Epiphany, with the arrival of the Three Kings. And so at this church council, which also wished for universal unity, they just declared all 12 days the sacred season of Christmastide, and it was to end on the 12th day. Sorry, can I just say, too, that that explains how yeah. even when you and I are doing our research, there were so many mm. things right as we started digging that could have been on this day or this day. Like that happens yes. so many times in our research. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like things changed around, they got switched up, and then it was like, well, in the East they do this, but in the West they do that. So, yeah, and I found that so interesting that that was actually like an entire thing historically Mm -hmm. in and of itself. So, yeah, thanks to the Roman Empire. So many things, thanks to the (laughs) Roman Empire. (laughs) That's their slogan so many things. Picturing it on their banners. So many things. <laughs> Too many to list here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in response to the festive nature of closing out the Christmas season, here is where we land on Twelfth Night. So in many ways in England, it symbolized a world turned upside down this Twelfth Night. The servants would be served by the wealthy. So they had a lot of role reversals. And this also makes sense when you think about the Shakespearean play Twelfth Night in which the protagonist, Viola, is separated from her twin brother, Sebastian, in a shipwreck. She disguises herself as a boy named Cesario and becomes a servant to the Duke of Orsino. And I was reading that although the play itself doesn't take place at Christmas time, that Shakespeare wrote it and it would have been performed around the Christmas season. So that's an interesting tie-in with Twelfth Night 2. And according to Drinking with the Saints... Uh, The festivities of Twelfth Night are based somewhat on the exploiting of a precedence set by the Roman pagan festival Saturnalia, which included role reversals and servants would be treated to a banquet more akin to what their masters would enjoy. So this became on Twelfth Night a nod and a recognition of the ultimate role reversal when Almighty God became a helpless infant in order to become our suffering servant. And I had been doing a lot of research on the role reversal thing, but had not heard, had not come across that really powerful visual, I guess, or image of how it could refer to God himself becoming human on Christmas. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's quite a lot of traditions for Twelfth Night, but I'm going to talk about just a few. Um, Twelfth Night cake is a really popular tradition. And it's a rich cake. It's made with butter, eggs, fruit, nuts, and spices, basically. And I actually read that its closest modern equivalent would be the Italian panettone that Mm. we would get today. Now, often the traditional game associated with Twelfth Night Cake would often include a dried pea or a bean or two coins in Georgian times being baked into the cake. And then whoever found the items would be crowned the Lord or Lady of Misrule and would be in charge of leading the night's festivities. So I'm not actually going to cover wassailing too much (laughs) because you did such a good job of it last week, Lindsay. (laughs) Or wassailing or wassailing. We were undecided. undecided. Yeah, either one is fine. (laughs) (laughs) But just as a quick refresher, it comes from the Anglo-Saxon phrase wassail which means good health. And it's a toasting tradition done with a drink called wassail. And wassail is a warmed drink and you can make it out of mulled ale, roasted apples, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, and sweet red wine. So like what you were saying, Lindsay, it was served in these huge bowls, right? And Mm -hmm. often they were made of either pewter or silver. And I was reading that there's apparently a wassail bowl at Jesus College in Oxford University that can apparently hold 10 gallons of drink, (laughs) which is quite a lot, a lot of wassail, right? So (laughs) 
Yeah. So, and then door to door was sailing, which is similar to our concept of going caroling, was popular right up until the 1950s. Now, if singing is not your thing, there was another tradition that I am equal parts fascinated and somewhat scared by, and that is the custom of mumming. Mm-hmm. Do you remember mumming? Mm-hmm. I remember the, seeing this from a Lucy Worsley documentary, I believe, on the 12 days of Christmas or Tudor Christmas. And basically the word means making diversion in disguise. So it's a custom that may have actually originated in Roman times where men and women swap clothes, uh, they put on masks, they go house to house singing or dancing or putting on silly plays, and the leader of the mummers would be dressed as Father Christmas. So it's believed to have come to England first on St. Thomas's Day, or which is the shortest day of the year, and in Warwickshire, it's actually known as going Thomasing. So mumming in medieval times quickly turned into an opportunity for committing crimes, which was afforded by the anonymity of masks. And so King Henry VIII actually outlawed mumming with a mask on. And you would actually be facing a prison sentence of three months if you were caught at that time mumming with a mask. Okay, so did you know that there is still the tradition of mummers from Newfoundland? That it is a Newfie no. tradition? So they do the same thing. Mm. My um, sister-in-law and brother just did it. We are not from Newfoundland. But okay. they just surprised <laughs> their Newfie friends by showing up com- with their faces completely covered, dressed kind of all in rags and put together weird costumes and basically terrified them at their front door um, <laughs> to do this this wonderful tradition of being a mummer. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Did they do it on the twelfth day, the twelfth no. night? They did just it randomly. Yeah, they no, they did it about a week and a half ago. But so oh. we'll have to look into more of how it changed when it came over to Newfoundland. Yeah, I would be really curious because if even in Newfoundland it still kept the twelfth night significant mm-hmm. date, it would be really startling to have someone do that on a random night in December. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so we have survived 12 days of feasting. Oh, I guess what's one more? It is now the Feast of the Epiphany on January the 6th. (laughs) Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, and Christians of other Western traditions celebrate on this day. The main thing celebrated on this day is the commemoration of the visit of the Magi, the three wise men, to the infant Christ. It is also known as Theophany, Three Kings Day, and Little Christmas. The word theophany is very interesting. In classical Greek, it referred to the appearance of dawn, of sunrise, or the appearance of an enemy in war. But most importantly, it was used when a deity manifested itself to someone who was worshipping it. It was used in Maccabees in the Old Testament and in Timothy in the New Testament and five times when referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I said that the main thing celebrated was the whole wise men visiting the baby Jesus thing, but the early church celebrated different things on and around the state, namely the nativity of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. And there's also the thought that the wedding feast at Cana happened on this date as well. It is interesting that Christ's divinity was revealed in these three ways to the Magi during his baptism and at the wedding feast which is why today is sometimes called Theophany, the revelation of a deity to the worshipers. Mm -hmm. At Mass on the Feast of the Epiphany, the priest usually blesses water, making it into Epiphany water. 
The water is different from holy water as it requires a longer prayer of blessing said by a priest over the water, making it a more powerful sacramental. I said usually because sadly many priests today have never even heard of this tradition. It was long practiced by Eastern Catholics, but it became an option for Roman Catholics in 1890. Some priests bless small quantities of gold, frankincense, and myrrh too. If you bring five frankincense incense sticks for a blessing, you can then use those blessed sticks as part of your Paschal candle during Holy Week if you've ever made a Paschal candle. The ones I've made just have like construction paper taped to a candle, so I've never actually Mm -hmm. inserted the five things of incense, but I thought that that was really fascinating. Salt and chalk are also blessed that day. The salt and epiphany water can be used in family homes throughout the year, sprinkled throughout the house during house blessing, and even consumed. You can sprinkle the blessed salt on your cooking. The blessed chalk has a very special purpose. We have talked about this before on the podcast, but a tradition that is growing very popular among Catholics is the chalking of doors, which is done on the Feast of the Epiphany. The blessed chalk is used to write a blessing over all the doorways into the family home or church or place of business. You write the current year plus the letters CMB, but you flank those letters on either side with the digits of the year. For example, this upcoming year, Jason will inscribe this over our front door. 20 C plus M plus B 22. The CMB stands for the names of the three Magi, Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. But it can also mean Christus Mansionium Benedicta, Christ bless this house. It is a popular custom to have the family then enter back into the house, stepping over the threshold using their right foot first so that they start off the year on the right foot. Now you can have your home blessed by a priest at any time during the year, but there is an extra special blessing only done during the octave of Epiphany, the week of Epiphany, and this one is basically a mini exorcism in the house and it uses the epiphany water. We have had this done every year for many years now, and maybe we're just imagining it, but both Jason and I have commented in years past that after it's done, there does seem to be like a darkness lifted off of our house. I look at it like having the sacrament of confession, but for our homes, please consider having an epiphany house blessing done this year. If you really can't get a priest to come and do it, the father of the home can do it, and of course the mother could too. You can look up Epiphany House Blessings online. I like the one on fisheaters.com. Okay, but can we celebrate just one more time? All of these mini exorcisms are a little bit heavy after so much levity. (laughs) So yeah, let's make a king cake. Now I've seen many of my American friends celebrate Mardi Gras on Fat Tuesday with a king cake. And it does make sense then too. But just in case people haven't consumed enough sugar during the 12 days of Christmas, many recipes can be found for king cakes online. But the special feature that makes this one really extra special for the Feast of the Epiphany is the addition of a little trinket baked again into a cake. They really like baking Mm. things into cakes, right? (laughs) Yes, they do. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So... Yeah, this trinket was usually a baby toy, like a toy of a little baby, a tiny one that was baked inside of the cake. And then whoever gets this baby in their piece has to host the Candlemas party on February 2nd. Ah, yes. Right? And what's Candlemas, you say? Uh, It's when we take our candles to go get blessed for the year. So I just want to remind everybody that in this period that just runs like over just one month, Catholics get Mm -hmm. to have their wine, salt, incense, water, and candles blessed, which I (laughs) think... is pretty cool yeah 
That's amazing. We're really uh, setting ourselves up. It's like a preparation, right, mm-hmm. for the year. Yep. So it really kind of goes along with New Year's and starting the year fresh and making resolutions. I've always thought you get your spiritual life in order, your physical life in order, because you're anticipating the year to come. time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? Well, you and I discussed sharing our Christmas favorites, right, this time. And mm-hmm. so I thought I would share my top five Christmas albums. Michelle, I tried to narrow it down to one, but mm, I have yes. such a good collection. I couldn't share just one. So we okay. will start at five. I guess it's still numerical, right? We're still counting things down. Right. But <laughs> I can't, <laughs> can't let it go. Theme. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Um, but we'll start at my fifth, uh, which is Raffi's Christmas album from 1983. Mm. Um, I feel like almost every Canadian kid grew up with this Christmas album playing in their houses. Yes. It's so classic. It's so good. So many memories. They're overall just really great songs. So if you guys have never heard of it, look up Raffi's Christmas album. The fourth one is A Jolly Christmas from Frank Sinatra, and it was released in 1957. Just a solid, if you like Frank Sinatra, if you love that era, it's a solid Christmas album. The third one is Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song, which I believe was released in 1962, which was two years after his um, Magic of Christmas album. But it is a whole Mm -hmm. album, but it's when he has the chestnuts roasting on an open fire. That song it's uh, in in this album. And oh my goodness, I mean, it's Nat King Cole. It's just (laughs) so dreamy. Um, Number two is Ella Fitzgerald's Ella Wishes You a Swinging Christmas from 1960. It is an awesome album. It is just Mm. so much fun. And I think this goes without saying and shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that the number one Christmas album is White Christmas by Bing Crosby. And it was originally released in 1945 as Merry Christmas. And then it was released later as White Christmas. And I think it's latest re-release on vinyl from 2014. It might be titled Merry Christmas again. Um, But the album cover still looks the same. It's the one with his face, right, with the Santa hat on. Yes. Yes. Every song, every note, it's like I have the original vinyl that I grew up with that perhaps my dad grew up with, like just been passed down. Oh, Mm. I just, you know, it's Christmas. It's Bing Crosby. You cannot, uh, you cannot separate the two. And we've said this before, but if you don't have a record player yet, buy one, like go out this week and buy a record player and collect these albums on vinyl. Because while I love vinyl throughout the year, it is especially wonderful for the aesthetic to have the records playing beside the Christmas tree. Right. So yeah. Oh, all on vinyl. And that's what I'm loving this week. Mm-hmm. All right, Michelle, let me have it. What are your favorite Christmas mm. albums? Okay. So for me, it just isn't Christmas without Christmas with Boney M. <laughs> the album. So we're just moving up a few decades here mm-hmm. to the early 1980s. Um, it, it, without a rousing rendition of Mary's Boy Child, <laughs> I, I don't know how you can celebrate the season. So, 
yeah, it was released in November 1981, and it includes such popular singles as Zion's Daughter, When a Child is Born, and The Silent Night Christmas Medley, which I love. And we used to travel into Toronto every Christmas to visit my grandparents and our extended family. So this album has stuck with me from those car rides Mm. for years. So there you go, between the 12 days and the feast days and the merrymaking and the feasting and the gift guides and the meal planning and now the musical recommendations, we hope we have adequately set everyone up to be able to embrace the upcoming Christmas season with style, fun, and most importantly, purpose. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com, or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at MM Sachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at Lindsay Homemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a very Merry Christmas, and we will see you again in the new year.